When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The news continues. I want to hand it over to Laura Coates in CNN Tonight. Laura? Hey, Anderson, thank you so much. Nice seeing you as always. And I am Laura Coates, and welcome to CNN Tonight. Look, I'm not going to you know, mince my words. This is a very big day. We can't underscore that point enough. And I just want to take a step back for a moment. And I want to kind of unpack in a way we haven't before exactly what has happened today and the significance of it. Because one year to the day of former President Trump's second impeachment, based on, you recall, his alleged role in inciting the insurrection on January 6th, the one that attacked the very citadel of our democracy because, you see, he didn't want to admit that he had lost the race, which he did. Remember, ever since then and since Merrick Garland was sworn in as the Attorney General of the United States, we know that he has been ridiculed for his pacing in the January 6th investigation. I mean, you've heard it. You, you may have said it so yourself. He's not moving fast enough. He's contemplative to the point of paralysis. He's just going to let them all off the hook just so that the Department of Justice is not still somehow perceived as political as it was under the prior administration. And even though his DOJ, as you know, has charged more than, what, 700 people connected to the attack, and that's just so far, look, he's been well aware of the frustrations out there. He hears them. He actually responded last week, and he vowed that it was far from over. Remember this? The actions we have taken thus far will not be our last. The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6 perpetrators at any level accountable under law, as long as it takes. As long as it takes. I bet some of you probably heard that, and a part of you, somewhere within you, you conflated this attorney general with maybe a Robert Mueller, right? You had the deja vu of the Mueller years. Hope it's not too soon to mention him. And you probably rolled your eyes thinking that it might only be the minions or a drawn-out process. And if it's the minions, then not the leaders could be prosecuted for the worst attack on our democracy in modern American history. But he told you, as long as it takes... And I bet you thought it would take a much longer period of time, and it's still not over, but more would be coming. Well, guess what? Here it is today. The first charges of seditious conspiracy have now been filed in connection with the terror that we all saw and witnessed unfold at the Capitol. Now, this isn't against the president, Donald Trump, or the then president, and now defeated President Trump, or any of his aides. But these people on the screen, they're not insignificant players in the grand scheme of things. And the DOJ has just filed these charges against, as you're seeing, the leader of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, and 10 other people. So this was not, by all accounts in the indictment, well, it wasn't spontaneous if you ever thought it was. It's somehow you construct gallows on the fly and everyone just happened to be here on January 6th. Spontaneity did not respond as your first thought here, was it? 
It wasn't a crowd going wild all of a sudden, unprompted, or a group of overzealous, what was the phrase, tourists, according to some members of Congress. And according to the DOJ, January 6th was highly and allegedly organized and also planned. They lay it all out in the indictment that was handed down by a grand jury yesterday, but not unsealed until today, which is why we're now just learning about it. And these defendants, they're accused of conspiring and organizing into teams, quote, prepared and willing to use force and to transport firearms and ammunition into Washington, D.C. I mean, they're accused of conspiring with other people to oppose the fancy language, the force, the execution of the laws governing the transfer of presidential power. A fancy way of telling you, trying to stop what we come to expect as the peaceful transition of power. And this man you're seeing on the screen is the biggest fish of the 11. And where we always talk about who's the biggest fish, who is it going to be, you're looking at him. The founder of the far-right militia, Oath Keepers. And he's accused of all kinds of plotting. I mean, the indictment says that even on his way to D.C. on January 3rd, he allegedly bought an AR platform rifle and other firearms equipment. We're talking about sights and mounts and triggers and slings. Tourist? I think not. And the DOJ says that he sent out a chat room message, get this, on November 5th, which is two days after the election. November 5th. But even before the race had ever been called, saying, quote, we aren't going to get, aren't getting through this without a civil war. Too late for that. Prepare your mind, body, and spirit. How can two days after an election be too late for what exactly? And talk of a civil war on November 5th alone? Look, these defendants are facing serious jail time if convicted. But I bet some of you are surprised that the word treason hasn't come up. Which brings me to what I want to explain about the difference between treason and sedition. And look, I know that a lot of people will use the term treason colloquially casually. That's treasonous. This is treason behavior. And I I get why we say that casually, but it's not a casual term. It's a legal term that requires the government to prove something, that the someone has actually aided and abetted an actual enemy of the United States. And the way that's been interpreted as a nation is as how or whom we are at war with. That's the enemy of the United States. Now, we are politically divided and no one can really argue that we are not, unfortunately. But we're not literally at war under that definition as it has been interpreted. And there's also a political angle to this because the founding fathers, recall, they intentionally limited the application of that term in the Constitution because they were concerned that, like the case in jolly old England, that this term and this accusation would be used as some excuse and opportunity to silence opposition and and punish political dissent. I mean, even Henry VIII had one of his wives executed because they defined treason so broadly and so subjectively to, to harm the king that apparently even allegations of adultery somehow qualified. But thankfully, in the United States of America, we don't have a king and we don't want a king. And that history, the political issues, constricts the way we are able or want to charge certain crimes. But seditious conspiracy, well, that's a horse of a different color. In fact, 
it might surprise you know it's a more serious crime technically than insurrection. And it's when two or more people conspire, the meeting of the minds, conspire to overthrow or destroy by force the government. And what it is, is a definitive statement that those weren't tourists after all. So where will this investigation go next? And how high up the alleged conspiracy are we really going to go? Here, we've got three key guests tonight. As we take this news apart, we have a lawyer for the Oath Keepers founder, Stuart Rhodes, who's also representing another defendant. We also have Michael Fanone, who was a victim of that rabid mob and a former D.C. police officer who, you know, was injured fighting them off that day in protection of everyone inside of the Capitol. But we begin with a member of the January 6th panel that issued Rhodes a subpoena back in November, that same month where you heard that sort of chat about too late and a civil war. Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California, welcome to CNN tonight. I'm glad you're here. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening. Good evening. And Congresswoman, you know, it strikes people, first of all, to recall that there is the January 6th committee, of course, and there is the DOJ investigation. You're operating on really parallel tracks, but there is some intersection here because you had subpoenaed Rhodes as part of the committee back in November. What did you want to know then? And any idea of uh, you could tell us about why you identified him so quickly? <clears throat> well, I can't get into all of that, but certainly it became quickly apparent that uh, Oath Keepers had played a role. And uh, we wanted to learn a lot more about that. Uh, we did issue a subpoena to him. I, I wanna make clear that the, the Department of Justice investigation is separate from ours. Obviously we're a legislative committee. We can't indict anybody, uh, DOJ can, but uh, it, it appears that we are looking at similar things in some cases, including this one. Was there any heads up that was given or did you find out the news about these um, charges like everyone else did in the news today? I found out about it on the news. Um, actually, one of the committee members uh, texted me uh, the news. Uh, you know, we've been in depositions all day long and uh, as we seem to be every single day. And um, so we're plowing through the evidence and uh, I think this is a significant charge that DOJ has made very serious charges. And on that point and the idea, and I understand you guys are doing a lot of work, a lot of interviews, a lot of investigatory work as part of your oversight and legislative function, Congresswoman. And it strikes me, of course, I wonder if it is impacting your ability to convince and persuade, if you are voluntarily seeking their cooperation, people who are now looking at the DOJ charges and may say to themselves, look, hold on, the legislative action in the select committee is one thing, giving testimony, but if what I say may be used against me now in a court of law, do you have concerns that the pacing and the decisions of the Department of Justice might impact your ability as a committee to get the information you're seeking from this point on? Well, so far we've had, uh, for the most part, good cooperation from witnesses. Obviously, the few who have stonewalled the committee um, take up most of the news space, but the vast majority of people we've asked to speak to us have come in to speak to us. A few have asserted a Fifth Amendment protection against prosecution. One of the things that we're considering is whether or not <clears throat> to seek use immunity to uh, require 
um, testimony in some of those cases. We haven't made a decision on that. Um, we are proceeding uh, very vigorously. There's a, a lot of information that we have received, but uh, there's a lot more to find out. And uh, we're working as quickly as we can. We worked through the holidays. Um, it, it is a very intense investigative experience. And Congresswoman, of course, for the audience, you know, the idea of a use immunity essentially is whether you're not going to be able to prosecute someone in the future if there is that motion to do so and that nod based on what they're telling you in front of the committee right now. Are they getting protected to make sure they can be as forthright and candid with you and down the line as possible? I'm curious to see how that actually plays out. Final question for you, though, Congresswoman Zolofgren, is that, you know, a lot of focus, of course, for people, we talk about the audience of one, but really there's a focus of one for so many Americans who think to themselves, this entire committee, and you've been accused as a committee on this very notion, that the whole focus is about the former President Donald Trump. Is the investigative committee Committee right now looking very broadly? And to what extent do you think the Oath Keepers are tied to the former president? Well, we're looking very broadly. I can't tell you what ties they have, if any, uh, to the former president, but obviously that's of interest. Our, our goal is to find out everything that happened leading up to the 6th, what was the plot, what happened on the 6th, and then to take steps to let the American people know everything we've found out and to recommend steps, legislation or administrative steps, so that this will never happen again. That's our mission. Congresswoman Zolofgren, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. You know, up ahead, she has been talking about use immunity. I'm having flashbacks to being a prosecutor right now, trying to figure out who's going to get it and who's not. But ahead, reaction to these significant developments from someone who was attacked at the Capitol that day. Retired officer Michael Fanone was badly beaten and even suffered a heart attack. I want to know what he makes of these first charges of seditious conspiracy. So I'll ask him next. All right, now look, we can probably finally put one big distortion from Trump world to rest, finally, at this point. Oh, it was an insurrection. So how many of the participants in that insurrection have been charged with insurrecting, with sedition, with treason? Zero, by the Biden Justice Department. Thus, no one has been charged with sedition or insurrection. Most have been hit with charges like parading, parading. Who knew that was a crime? Has anybody been charged with sedition? Nobody. Has anybody been charged with treason? Nobody. So why do they keep calling it an insurrection? How many times do words like insurrection, sedition, or treason appear in Biden's own DOJ indictments against the January 6th rioters? The answer, zero. And how much they know about what they're talking about. The same thing, nothing. Let me tell you about this issue here. Of course, I've already explained earlier in the show as to why treason would not be charged. It would not be applicable unless we were actually at war and they were aiding, abetting, or getting some comfort to it. But now the idea of sedition, well, that actually is there now. And there are 11 people, 11 charges right now, 11 people who have been charged, excuse me, and members of the Oath Keepers and Associates, and they have now been charged. So I Hope that ends that line of inquiry. Something tells me it might not, but the DOJ says that its indictment 
In its indictment, they ignore organized in, into two different groups at the Capitol, and they referred to one as Stack One and the other as Stack Two, as you see there. Now, Stack One, they joined a mob of people, some of whom attacked officers, law enforcement officers, using things like pepper spray and flagpoles and numerous improvised weapons and projectiles. And the other members of what's called Stack 2 were standing nearby, according to the indictment, aggressively berating and taunting law enforcement officers who were just guarding the perimeter of the Capitol building and threatened officers that were already outnumbered. And even scarier, if it can be called that, the indictment says that the group had set up what they call, quote, quick reaction force teams off-site who were prepared to rapidly transport firearms and other weapons into Washington, D.C. Still think they're tourists? Joining me now is one of the officers that was attacked that very day, former D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer and CNN law enforcement analyst Michael Fanone. I'm, I'm happy to see you, Michael, but I'm sad to see you under these circumstances because this is not where we should be and thinking about this. And yet here we are, a year later, still talking about, and I know you're personally reeling from it as the nation is, I, I want to hear, Michael, what is your reaction to now hearing that there are sedition charges against 11 people? What's your thought? Well, first, thanks for having me. Um, now, I think these charges confirm that the FBI has uncovered evidence that supports, you know, what many of us who were on the ground that day defending the Capitol witnessed firsthand, mm -hmm. that there were highly organized groups who were exploiting the chaos of that day and that the leaders of these extremist groups were intimately involved in the planning, the preparation, and the training of their members. The charges also speak to the group's specific intentions to interfere with and impede Congress from certifying the 2020 election. I also think they directly contradict the narrative that January 6th was some kind of wholly spontaneous event. Um, you know, my familiarity with these groups um, is limited. I was a drug guy uh, in the department, but uh, from what I do know, you know, many of these groups ascribe to a nationalist, anti-government ideology. And these are the people that Donald Trump and his political supporters invited to, into the Republican Party. And I think while their efforts to uh, overtake the Capitol proved unsuccessful, uh, they have been successful in holding the GOP hostage. Mm. And, you know, you, you mentioned the idea of your background in working drug cases. Frankly, I think it's very transferable here. And, you know, I was a prosecutor as well. And thinking about what your priorities are and where you're looking at things and these conspiracy charges, as you know, you don't just go after, say, in a drug case, you don't just go after the person who is the drug pusher. You want to go to the kingpin. You want to figure out who has been the decision maker, who is delegating the different criminal activity, right? And so when you think about this and think about how we're looking at the conspiracy of people who are, who are organizing it, I mean, what about your experience there let you say, there's something here about the organization. This is something that was not spontaneous at all. What about their activity led you to believe in those moments, those harrowing moments, frankly, that this was a coordinated attack? I mean, it was clear to me that there was uh, some degree of coordination, uh, specifically at the Lower West Terrace Tunnel. Uh, I mean, while there was, uh, you know, elements of spontaneity, uh, there was also individuals there that clearly had uh, prepared for the events of that day. They were wearing 
military style gear, Kevlar vest, Kevlar helmets. Uh, you don't bring those types of uh, equipment to a peaceful protest. You don't come equipped with chemical irritants, with uh, weapons, uh, firearms. You know, those are just things that you, you don't bring if your intention is, is peaceful protest. I think you're right. And DOJ confirms that at least today in their thoughts and a grand jury, more importantly, has now issued those indictments. Michael Fanone, thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for having me. You know, when we come back, you're going to hear from a lawyer for the founder of the Oath Keepers. We keep talking around it and about it, but he actually is an attorney for him who is, and they know they're now in very serious legal trouble. So just, I'm curious, what will Stuart Rhodes' defense be? I mean, could this arrest lead to even maybe bigger names in the Trump world orbit? Or is he the biggest fish on the hook? Coming up next. So the names of the Oath Keepers rested today, well, frankly, they may not mean much to you. Not a whole lot of name recognition for some people. But I assure you that Stuart Rhodes, he is well known in the MAGA world. He's been a regular speaker at pro-Trump events, including another D.C. Stop the Seal rally that took place less than a month before the January 6th attack. And it's those connections that really make him a key witness for the House Select Committee, as we talked about with Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. But also my next guest represents Rhodes in his conversations with that very committee, as well as Rhodes' now co-defendant, Kelly Meggs. Jonathan Mosley, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you. Good to talk to you. You know, I, I'm been eager to talk to you because it's, first of all, it's a very big day. And be very clear, you don't represent this defendant on the criminal front, just in terms of the committee. But they're on very parallel tracks, as I'm sure you can imagine. And they probably want very similar information. And I, I'd love to hear from you what you anticipate the defense being, because if they've got these, these signal messages, if they're suggesting that he sent messages even in November long before the January attack as well, that there is some notion of conspiracy. Are you concerned at all about what defense he possibly could mount? Well, they're very serious charges. And let me say that uh, nobody represents him on the criminal charges because they just happened. Um, so there's that. But um, there are very serious cha uh, charges. When they go to trial, though, one must put the entire document or post or recorded statement before the jury, which is not what we see here. So um, I think their main defense is going to be um, that um, some very serious things happened, like on the, the Arch Tunnel, what uh, Michael uh, Fanon was just saying about the Lower West Side Terrace, but um, that these aren't the guys who did it. Now, even the government says that they, they're accusing them of an organizational role. They admit that they did not commit any violence. They did not hurt any police officers. They did not damage any property, but they're charging them as being conspirators. Um, the organizers or, or aiders and abettors, that sort of thing. And, well, and so those are very serious charges, but, but we are. do believe they, they have to prove it. And um, I know from the documents that they have, they knew in last May and, and March that they came to be support services for demonstrations. So um, 
Well, but, um, but on that point, though, excuse me, on that point, yes, they are they are charged with conspiracy, which, of course, is a very serious crime. But we also know we're talking about ideas of having weapons in other places in close proximity if they need to have it all of a sudden. I mean, your your client's own statements in different chat rooms and messages talks to about the issue of civil war and about the idea of um, essentially the urgent behavior. And so it's not like, I mean, if we're being realistic here, it's not as if they were going Going there to braid each other's hair, right? They, they actually were, what was the role? Why do you think they were actually there? Was it to disrupt the government? Was it to take more violent action? Was it to, cons- what, what was the reason they are telling you that they were actually there? There are about, there are about three reasons which the government has well documented um, uh, the prosecution it, is that uh, they wanted, they, they were providing security usher services and whatever for the, the, the peaceful demonstration at the ellipse. They were coming to the Capitol for a permitted demonstration on Lot 8 that Alex Jones and Ali Alexander were going to have. That went off the rails and didn't happen. They also believed, and I don't pretend to understand this, but they thought that the president was going to invoke the Insurrection Act and they might be called up in the nature of a militia. Um, that sort of escapes my understanding, but but they, they really did believe that that it might come to that, that the president would call upon them. So but who, in but my who, opinion, I'm, I'm sorry, did, but who asked them, I, I, I want to get to your opinion, but I also want to focus on what they are saying. Who told them to provide security? Are they acting under, under the direction of someone in particular, or were they volunteering and assuming to provide it in some way? Were they instructed? No, they, they, they were volunteers, but they, but they were asked by originally by um, Ali Alexander's event planning firm to come to um, one event, and then they were redirected over to the Ellipse for the Women for America First rally, and and they and they were there, and and uh, you know were in the row, and their goal is to escort people through the crowd, provide medical support, help with VIP um, people, and that sort of thing. I know um, you can't see me, Jonathan, so, and I, so I'm, I'm frowning a little bit. I want to tell you why I'm furrowing my brow the way I am. And it's because um, right. I'm, I'm having a hard time believing the notion, just from seeing what the indictment says and some of the documents, um, that they believe they were only there to provide security. Because if you're, if you're looking at the Oath Keeper's own words, right, I mean, you've got um, January 6th, after Trump was speaking, which, by the way, I think might actually inert to the benefit of Donald Trump, does he? All I see Trump doing is complaining. I see no intent by him to do anything. So the patriots are taking it into their own hands. They've had enough. Another time on December 25th, in a signal message and thread, it was there is going to be blood in the streets no matter what. Another time, December 26th. Wait for the 6th when we are all in D.C. to insurrection. Another time in November, you're going to be in a bloody, bloody civil war and a bloody, you can call it an insurrection or you can call it a war or a fight. The fight's coming. I, that to me doesn't say we're going to go ahead and help navigate people and escort them through a crowd. Doesn't that say to you that there were plans in some way to engage or at least expecting violent behavior? Well, I see how someone could, could see it that way, but I'm going to demand that all of the the entire conversation be in front of the the court when that Fair comes enough. out because because i i don't think a lot of these things are, are about what they intend but lamenting the state of our of our um situation and you know the last time the sedition conspiracy act was, was brought um in 2010 it failed the, process, the judge threw it out saying just statements can't be a seditious uh seditious conspiracy and i know what the prosecution has they know that it's an ironclad lock that they were there to support 
the, the demonstrations that had permits. But like I'm saying, they also believed that there, there could be a massive attack by Antifa and this, the, the middle word in quick reaction force is reaction. They also believed that they, that the president might call on them, you know, to, to write, to, to be deputized in effect, um, to, to, uh, to deal with, with something out of control. So, uh, I don't get that, but that's what they thought. They thought that the, he was, that they might be asked to, to step in and they had all, all these weapons ready. But of course, the thing is they didn't bring them into the district of Columbia and well, the president didn't well. invoke the insurrection act and they didn't, they didn't take it upon themselves. Well, Jonathan, I, I understand your role as an attorney. I've been there myself and the idea of having to represent your clients. And I understand, and I'm not attributing these statements to you, but we both know as lawyers that the idea of conspiracy means you have to take at least one step in furtherance and an overt act and the preparation you're talking about, the idea of planning, the idea of assuming and preparing that you might be deputized by the president and then having guns placed somewhere that you could actually use them. These are things that are not, as we call them in the law, these are bad facts for the client. But we'll talk another day as well. Jonathan Mosley, thank you for your time. Thank you. We're going to turn now to the major defeat today for President Biden on federal vaccine mandates for businesses. HHS Secretary Javier Becerra is here tonight. So just the question is, what can the administration do now to stop more waves of outbreaks among the unvaccinated? Are they being hamstrung by the Supreme Court? And where is the government in its race to make testing and high quality masks available to all Americans, all who want them? Secretary, up next. Well, the Supreme Court dealt a major blow to President Biden's anti-COVID efforts today. They've now blocked the administration from enforcing a nationwide vaccine or testing mandate at large businesses. And the conservative majority's reasoning? Well, that the agency known as OSHA, which oversees workplace safety standards, they'd overstepped, saying, quote, although Congress has indisputably given OSHA the power to regulate occupational dangers, it is not given that agency the power to regulate public health more broadly. And requiring the vaccination of 84 million Americans selected simply because they work for employers with more than 100 employees certainly falls in the latter category. Now, notably, however, they are allowing a separate policy. Remember, these cases were kind of heard at the same time. A vaccine mandate on some healthcare workers to go into effect. And that's going to apply to those people who work at facilities that receive federal funds. That's the hook, a way to get their authority there. Joining me now is Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra, who has been at the very forefront of these legal battles. I'm glad to see you. How are you, Secretary? Good, Laura. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And Happy New Year, but not a very happy day when it comes to the idea of how the administration plans to be able to enforce these mandates. It's been a very big pillar in the administration and your efforts. What's your reaction to the Supreme Court's decision that, look, you may have the power to regulate safety and, and business practices in the, in the office, but this is a bridge too far? Well, first, we are going to get to require that all those workers in America who are healthcare workers, who are dealing with patients and uh, risk uh, themselves and their colleagues and those patients' lives if we pass the uh, COVID virus around, uh, there we will be able to move forward. That is good news. Disappointing news that uh, the president's efforts to try to make sure uh, workers at these companies with over 100 employees 
uh, are also required to vaccinate didn't go through. And uh, it's unfortunate because many of us believe the president has that authority in these times of emergency. And it's unfortunate because we know vaccines save lives, vaccines work, and not getting people vaccinated is putting not just themselves, but others in peril. So we'll move forward. And the president is leaning forward in all of these measures uh, because his job is to make sure that the Americans are protected. I mean, vaccines do save lives. There's indisputable evidence about that. And I know that's very important, which is probably one of the reasons where for healthcare workers, maybe it made more sense in the emergency context. This court, I'm not going to get in the minds of the Supreme Court justices at the moment, because I can tell you I have confusion about a lot of their reasoning most recently. But they all, you are knowing that starting this Saturday, there is something happening. You're going to make sure that insurers are covering the at-home tests for free. And this is important for people to understand because I know that equity has been a big push, the vaccine equity, the idea of vaccine diplomacy worldwide, but also what's happening here domestically. So how is this going to help to sort of help in those costs? These are expensive tests, right? Well, and the, and the cost should go down. And so what the president has said is that one way or the other, if Americans want to get tested and we want them to be tested, we're going to make them available. So First, the president has said that where you have private health insurance coverage and you go out and buy a test, you should be able to get reimbursed for having bought that uh, test, uh, the rapid test, if you want to do it at home. Secondly, uh, the president said, well, we know some folks in America are not yet insured. And so for those folks, through our broad span of community-based clinics, health clinics that we have in America that are certified by the federal government, uh, we will make 50 million of these tests available for free. So if you don't have insurance or if you haven't been able to access them in any other means, you can go to one of these clinics and access that test for free. That's on top of now what the president is saying that coming soon uh, through a website that will be established shortly, we're gonna try to make available up to 500 million uh, tests to Americans for free. In fact, uh, this week, the president announced he's going to boost that up to a, a, bi- uh, uh, a billion tests over the course of the next several months. So he's doing everything he can to make sure that, one, we have all the vaccines we need, two, we have the tests we need, three, we have the therapeutics we need, and four, we've got to make sure people are masked as well. As well. We're going to do everything we can to help there. I mean, the costs are ridiculous. I mean, I know I ordered the KN95 masks for my children. It was going to take 10 days, costing $68. I remember the price for like 25 masks. And the idea of thinking about the cost of the testing, I mean, for those lucky enough to find the tests you're talking about, they range from 10 to 50 bucks a pop. And you're talking about the, the amount of times you have to actually do it. It's very important. And one of the concerns people have, and I, I'm, I'm not going to you know, undermine the fact that this is being done right now, But there is a question from people as to why is it just being done now? I mean, this was foreseeable because you went from vaccine, you know, curious to then vaccine hesitancy to vaccine reluctance to really vaccine refusal. So we knew that it's going to be an issue to have this still lingering in our society. Why didn't why weren't the actions sooner? Can you explain? So remember, Laura, that unlike the vaccine, these uh, tests have been available for quite some time. Uh, in fact, uh, the PCR tests, which are the tests that you send into the lab to get the results, have been available uh, for quite and they were sitting around. People weren't using them. Uh, but what's happened now is Omicron, in, including people who are vaccinated, like you, like me, are, are getting tested and want to 
get tested. And the result is you have a much higher demand. And so the commercial market where these tests have been available hasn't kept pace. And the president said that's unacceptable. Uh, the commercial market, which is supposed to be able to meet demand, hasn't done so. So what he has done is he has put the force of the federal government behind the effort to try to get us those masks faster, whether it's by getting people reimbursed for those they buy commercially or by making them available, as I said, either through these community health clinics or through the process of getting 500 million new tests out there very quickly over the next several uh, weeks and months to people who want them and go online uh, on a website that we'll establish very, very shortly. That's important because I know, I mean, I don't, I can't pretend to know the entire Greek alphabet, but I know there are probably at least five more letters and each wanting to name a variant at some point, which I hope never happens, but hope there'd be preparedness on this next round, thinking about what to do next. And now hopefully past his prologue. Secretary Becerra, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it too. You know, less than 300 days from now, less than 300 days from now, Republicans could win back control of the House. If they do, what then? We have new reporting on what they are already planning and Van Jones on what it means. Up next, there he is. Republicans, as you know, could take back the House and the Senate in the midterm elections. And GOP leaders are already talking about, well, what would come next if they did. There will be a lot of oversight and investigations, and we shouldn't predetermine where that's going to go. But let's get facts out and finally start having real accountability. We're going to be working hard to get to the bottom of facts and transparency so we can hold people accountable. Now, it's curious because this drive for accountability wasn't, well, wasn't present during the Trump years, was it? But all of a sudden... Well, here we are. As my colleagues here at CNN report, there is an onslaught of probes being plotted in the run-up to 2024. Far-right members are already talking about impeachment proceedings, new investigations into Biden's son, Hunter, and shifting the narrative on January 6th, focusing solely on security failures, also the origins of COVID, and more. I don't quite hear the legislative component of any of these things, and I remember civics, that that's the legislative branch, but maybe I'm just too nitpicky about how this goes down. It's like retaliation now is the name of the game. So where does that leave us? Well, Van Jones is here. I'm glad to see him. Van, how are you doing? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm doing well, but I'm very concerned about where we're headed as a country at this point. I can't imagine why, or I absolutely can. And here's the reason why, Van. I mean, we just heard, essentially, and we're hearing more and more, is the platform retaliation? Because that's not going to do much for the nation. No, it's not. And, you know, uh, Kevin McCarthy, I think people uh, sometimes forget, he actually used to be a real leader. Uh, I'm not just talking about when he stood up against uh, Donald Trump and, and called out the his role in the insurrection. Before that, Kevin McCarthy uh, was a responsible conservative. Uh, and then there was a rebellion in his party to his right that pushed him out of the way in favor of somebody else becoming Speaker of the House. And he stopped being a leader and has now become a follower. Uh, he is following uh, the worst uh, elements in his party. He's so afraid that if he doesn't throw out this kind of red meat and, and this sort of stuff, that he's not going to become Speaker, that he has stopped being a leader. He's now a follower. And it's, it's really uh, shocking to see. Uh, I know Kevin McCarthy 
the idea that he's going to say, I'm going to come into power and all I'm going to do is retaliate and attack Democrats and not help the American people is really shocking and disappointing. Well, I mean, to say the least, and you, you mentioned that, and I remember seeing Steve Scalise just now on the screen as well. We remember, I mean, he was unfortunately the victim of a violent attack shot at a congressional baseball game. And there was talk then about the idea of division, about what it would be like to come together, the idea of why political rhetoric can go awry and be fatal or just deadly, at least in the attempt. But you mentioned the idea of the, of the quest for power. And that's where I think people need to really understand what's going on here, Van, because it's not about the idea of the GOP simply regaining the majority. What you describe is the idea of the, the idea of the concession and going along to be able to get power. But then the question is, once you have the power, so say he becomes a leader and the House Speaker, well, what do you plan to do with it? Again, retaliation is not a platform. It's a verb. It's a, well, it's really a noun, but retaliating is the verb. Is that the plan? Yeah. Uh, it, listen, uh, I hope uh, that if he does get the opportunity to be Speaker of the House, that he looks in the mirror and says he's, you know, third in line uh, for the presidency in a country with a bunch of problems. Uh, we have you know, an ecological crisis. We have an economic crisis. We have a crisis. We have violence, uh, you know, breaking out in shocking ways in different parts of the country. And we actually need some real leadership. And uh, I, I'm going to be the best person to throw food in the food fight. Uh, that's really disappointing. I, look, I, I think a lot of Americans are looking at the entire political class right now and wondering where is the leadership going to come yeah. from? Uh, 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 Kevin, Kevin McCarthy knows better. It's sad to see what he's doing right now. It is. And it's sad, really, not just for one party, but really the nation, because democracy is not a spectator sport. And we're all in it. Van Jones, thank you. Nice to see you. Good to see you as well. I'll chat with Don next. Hey, thanks for watching. I'll be back tomorrow. Don Lemon tonight starts right now. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.